Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now is David Kelly, the Chief Global Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. David, this quote from Morgan Stanley and Mike Wilson on a spike in energy prices, quote, would destroy demand in our view and perhaps tip several economies into an outright recession, the polar vortex. David, do you agree? None of it's just uh, none of it's just energy prices. I mean, there is a risk, of course, uh, if we get an all-out war in Ukraine. I mean, we don't know how far that goes, and the the long-term implications could be significant. But if it's just tensions, higher oil prices, it's not enough. I mean, there's a lot of momentum in the U.S. economy, there's a lot of momentum in global economies as we come out of the pandemic. There's a lot of pent-up demand. So I think the world can handle oil at 90 or oil at 100. Um, if it has to handle that and a big war and all the uncertainty that comes with that, it's a different matter. Hey, David Kelly, if we assume buoyant nominal GDP, whatever the makeup is of real GDP and the inflation dynamic as well, how do we fare given buoyant nominal GDP? Well, it, it helps corporate profits. Um, and, you know, it, it is it is kind of what it is. I mean, the, you know, we, we, there's a lot of talk about Fed policy and the Fed being more aggressive, but that's going to have an impact in, you know, later this year, in 2023. For right now, the economy is, you know, it's going to be slow in Q1. Those are still going to be low numbers for Q1 GDP. Then it's going to boom in Q2, and then it's going to slow as the year goes on. I think that's true for um, you know, inflation is obviously high in Q1, but I think inflation will also be fading as the year goes on. So that that that's what we've got, and I, I think the Fed needs to just take it easy here um, in uh, normalizing policy and don't try to don't think that they can actually fix all of this uh, at one sitting. Well, do you think that the message from the yield curve is basically saying just that, and it's an important and instructive tool right now for why you think the Fed should not move perhaps as aggressively as people are pricing in? Yeah, because I think the yield curve is telling us that the, the, the Fed is going to overreact and then pull back. Um, and that's exactly what the Fed should not do. What the Fed should do is what Mary Daly was saying over the weekend, be patient, be gradual. You know, 25 basis points per meeting, next four meetings, get going in the balance sheet over the summer. Um, but just keep at it. Um, you know, don't get don't get spooked and try to get back to normal rates. Uh, but the yield curve is saying, nope, they, do, they uh, go aggressive and then they have to pull back when something goes wrong with the market or the economy. David Kelly, this idea of engineering a soft landing, just how wide open is that window still to do so? Well, it's, it's bumpy anyway. It's, it's kind of like a plane coming in with the, with the wings flapping all over the place. You're wondering, you know, should, should you have the option of going around and trying it again? Um, it's, it is bumpy because uh, we've got very low growth in the first quarter, booming inflation. But again, there's not much we can do about it. A lot of this has to do with just a waves of, of distortion caused by the pandemic itself. And I think you, you just have to sort of play it out. But, you know, could we achieve a soft landing? Yeah. I mean, the economy does seem to have a natural tendency to put out sort of 2% growth per year and 2% inflation per year. There are a lot of years which look kind of like that. And I think we can get back to that. Um, but it's, uh, it is looking a little uh, bumpy and challenging right now. Hey, David Kelly, thank you, sir. As always, of JP Morgan Asset Management. Let's get to the bond market talk. We can do that with Sabadra Jampa, the head of US rate strategy at SOCGEN. Sabadra, I don't expect you to have a crystal ball. 
on things associated with geopolitics, risk and military exercises. What I'd like to do with you is try and understand how negative developments in, say, Ukraine would influence central bank and central banking policy from your perspective. How do you think it would? I think it does play a factor because of the fact that you don't want to be seen as aggressively hawkish or raising rates too fast at a time when geopolitics is a key concern. I mean, to me, really, the, the key indicator is the two cents part of the curve. That's at around 40 basis points. So so really, any sort of more hawkish rhetoric, if anything, is going to flatten the curve because you're going to see this sort of flight to quality um, you know, bid on the tenure. So again, I've said this many times before, I, I think the last thing the Fed wants to do is to raise policy rates too aggressively, flatten out the curve and lead to a recession. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot already baked into the into the bond market right now. We're pricing in six rate hikes by the end of the year, five of which are delivered before September. So that's a very aggressive policy uh, path already. So I just don't think you're going to get much more of a hawkish tone from the Fed. They're going to be very, very cautious, uh, especially with the Ukraine situation. So, Andrew, what happens in Ukraine will influence the decision of the ECB in a different way. The spillover to the European economy will be very different compared to, say, the US. How would you expect the yield curves in, say, Germany and Italy to develop off the back of those stories? So, so far, we've seen sort of a steepening of the of the yield curve in, in, in Europe because of, uh, you know, Fed hike, uh, sorry, ECB uh, hike expectations getting priced into the into the market. Um, I think that they're in a very tough situation with the, with oil being a, a key issue and Ukraine, you know, in their backyard. Um, you're going to see some of the you know the rate hikes getting priced out of the market. I would think if the Ukraine situation gets worse, because you know natural gas is a very important uh, you know issue for them. You know energy prices have gone up quite meaningfully. Again, you don't you know the ECB again doesn't want to be punitive and uh, sound very hawkish at a time when geopolitics is is front and center especially because of the fact that I think higher oil prices are going to eat into consumer spending, not just in, in, in Europe, but also in the U.S. Mm. So I think central bankers are very aware of that. What is your view of this distinction between a flat curve, two's tens equal yield, or maybe, you know, 10 basis point spread, whatever, and an inverted curve? What is the difference between those two for markets? Well, there isn't really much of a difference per se, right? If, at, at these levels, you're 40 basis points away from uh, being uh, cl being uh, close to zero or inverted. So we're really watching the curve very, very uh, closely to see what signals we're getting. Typically, a flattish curve or an inverted curve is going to lead to a slowdown in growth in about a year's time or, or two years' time. Uh, in past Fed rate hike cycles, you tend to see that the Fed hikes rates, uh, you know, well past inversion, you know, in, in the last two cycles in the in, in 1999, as well as in 2005, they hiked rates by, you know, one and a quarter to one and a half percent after the Fed, the curve inverted. This time around, I think they're going to be very, very cautious. They're looking at the signals from the yield curve to make sure that they don't tighten policy too fast and slow down the economy, especially since we're, the recovery is still very fragile. You're looking at a first quarter where growth is going to be quite meaningfully uh, slower. You're looking at perhaps a weaker retail sales number because of the Omicron variant. So under those circumstances, I think the Fed's going to be uh, you know, very cautious when it comes to policy, and policy is going to be very measured. Is this environment, however, Subhadra, getting more concerning for credit? 
Yeah, definitely. I think you're starting to see credit spreads start to widen. Uh, you're seeing, uh, you know, the fact that the Fed is going to be stepping away from the market, especially asset purchases. It's going to be less supportive for interest rates in, in general. And the talk is that, you know, there's going to be a pretty decent, you know, rapid unwind of the balance sheet, you know, sometime starting in June or July of this year by the middle of next year. So, again, you know, the, the policy uh, being, re- you know, accommodation being removed from asset purchases is going to impact both, uh, you know, treasuries as well as uh, credit products, broadly speaking. Sabadra, thank you. As always, Sabadra Japa there of SogGen on a flatter, perhaps maybe <clears throat> even inverted yield curve further down the road in 22. Alex Bordeaux, we are thrilled to have with us practice head at Eurasia Group for so much of the continent of Europe and Eastern Europe as well. Truly an authority. Alex, what is the diplomatic construction if we choose to contain Vladimir Putin and if we choose to allow him some form of saving face in the coming hours and the coming days? What does the West need to do? Well, I, I think that the package of, of diplomatic efforts has to include addressing a number of the issues that, that Putin has brought forward, and that includes some really tough issues like Ukraine's membership uh, in NATO. I think the comments from Foreign Minister Lavrov and, and Putin's assent today are, are a good sign uh, that negotiations can continue, but it's been pretty clear, especially in the last week, that there's really been not much change uh, for Putin on what issues really matter, and it's this NATO a Ukraine dynamic that I think is still going to be very important. So ultimately, they have to come to some sort of uh, agreement or understanding on that. And that's really hard to do in this circumstance. I think, you know, the, the, the chances of, of a real diplomatic breakthrough have actually gone down mm-hmm. uh, just in the last uh, few days. If we stagger from Yalta to the history of, say, 1991, and then to now a new affirmation of what NATO will be, what do you and Ian Bremer perceive the new NATO will look like? Well, one of the, the interesting aspects of what's happened so far is that, in fact, because of the, the military threat posed to Ukraine, we've seen more cohesion uh, and unity in NATO than we've really seen in a long time. And a lot of that's been directed at, at countering what is, is, has been coming from the Russian government. Uh, I, I think the diplomatic efforts that the U.S. Uh, have, have, has made towards uh, European countries and NATO allied members uh, has been notable and actually has gone fairly well so far. Uh, so we're seeing a fairly dynamic response there. I think the question is, uh, really, it does that pressure then lead to some level of concession on the part of Moscow? The problem in the last uh, few weeks is that we really haven't seen that coming from Putin. Alex, what have the Russians achieved so far over the last few weeks? Well, they brought the West to the table on some issues that uh, clearly have mattered a lot to Putin uh, over the years. And this includes uh, Ukraine's foreign policy orientation, and it includes uh, this issue of, of NATO's presence on Russia's western border. Uh, and Putin himself has kind of you know, noted that, uh, that he thinks that the, the pressure that's been brought to bear since November has actually led to that result. Um, I, I think for Putin, he's still looking for some type of diplomatic win here. Uh, and that's probably going to involve something more than just getting everybody to the table. It's going to involve some level of concession, and that's where the problem is in the diplomacy. What's his main motivation? I'm talking about uh, Vladimir Putin's domestic agenda versus inter- his international agenda. 
I, I think that there are a number of security concerns that Putin really perceives need to be addressed. Now, I, I would question some of the, you know, some of the underlying motivations for some of that. We heard it, some of it in his press conference with Macron last week. Um, and, uh, but I think that he does think that Russia faces a direct security threat coming from NATO and that he is trying to address that. And Ukraine is kind of the focal point uh, for that. I, certainly he has talked a lot about, uh, you know, his views uh, of Ukraine and its links to Russia, but I think the security matters have really come through uh, in the last couple of months uh, in his rhetoric. Alex, just finally, before we let you go, of course, there is a lot of diplomacy still to take place through the next 24 hours. What are the kind of words, language that you're looking for that would indicate de-escalation or perhaps the opposite from Chancellor Schultz or other, anyone else for that matter through the next day or so? I think one of the words that we've heard a lot, especially coming from the Russian side, is basis. Is there a basis for having uh, significant concrete discussions on European security? And if we start to get signals uh, like that, I think that that would be uh, a good sign. Uh, unfortunately, in recent days, the indications have been that that's not where we are. Alex Bredow, thank you, sir, of Eurasia Group, particularly for that final <laughs> comment. Right now, Lindsay Piegza joins us, our first briefing of the week. The chief economist at Stiefel, we're thrilled that she could join us uh, this morning. Lindsay, let's just get back to the recalculation. I'm sure you did over guacamole last night on the couch, and that is the terminal rate of inflation, whether it's the near rate out, say, one year or a rate farther out. What is the, the trend that we're heading towards on inflation? Well, right now, it seems as if inflation has nowhere to go but up. But as demand, pent-up demand, excuse me, it is satisfied. And as we start to see some of these supply chain disruptions smoothed and balances restored, we would expect to at least see that second derivative decline or a slower pace of positive price increase set in by the second half of the year, giving us a nice downward trajectory then as we head into 2023. And this is really what the Fed is banking on. Right. The Fed is... Uh, uh, very much convinced that inflation is near or at peak levels. Do you point. agree with this? I mean, the Arch Research note this weekend is: is it two or three percent? Uh, is a statistic, or is it four or five percent? What is the the path we're going to, even with Fed hopes and dreams? I think we could easily see 4.5% by the end of the year and a continued downward trajectory as we go into 2023. So when we put that in perspective to the Fed's target of 2%, the takeaway is that we're likely to be well above that target level for quite some time. But again, for the Fed, for the market, it's the trajectory of inflation that's really going to set the tone for the expectation of a change in monetary policy over the next 12 to 24 months. Lindsay, how do you push back against the assertion that inflation is becoming more entrenched and you could see this in rent prices you could see this in the fact that cpi came in that much hotter than expectations that already were for a pretty hot inflationary environment well, remember, there's two types of inflation. There's the demand side and then there's the supply side. On the supply side, production costs moved up quickly because of these supply chain disruptions, distortions and imbalances. That's the component that the Fed was very much focused on, the transitory component, if you remember that language. And we do expect that to ease in the medium term, again, as balance is restored across the global marketplace. And we're already starting to see a little bit of price pressures ease looking at the PPI with this week 
week's report expected to ease further. On the other side, you do have the demand pressures, and that's where the entrenchment, the concern of this wage price spiral is really setting in. And that's going to be the component more difficult for the Fed to control going forward if, in fact, we do see this more entrenched as prices rise across nearly every sector of the economy. So do you see a wage price spiral at this point, given the fact that real wages are still deeply negative for for some measures, the most negative since 2007? Well, they certainly are still negative. When we talk about that 5 to 6% wage increase, it's certainly less impressive against the backdrop of 7% inflation. But we're still seeing that cycle set in. Higher prices leading to higher wages, leading to higher prices. So the wage price spiral, although still inefficient for workers, has very much set in, at least over the, the previous, uh, I would say, about six-month period. Lindsay, let's look forward to retail sales. We've got a few distractions on a Monday morning, but the, the, the key distraction of the week is this measurement of the American consumer. Is it good math worth focusing on? Absolutely. It tells us the health of the consumer. It tells us the comfortability of the consumer to move back into the marketplace. Now, if you look back to the third quarter and the end of the fourth, excuse me, the the beginning of the fourth quarter, we had sort of this buy now mentality, the fear that inflation was going to continue to rise. So we needed to buy what we needed today because tomorrow it was going to cost more if it was available at all. So what we really saw was a lot of these metrics pulling forward traditional end of the year, holiday spending. These uh, these measures, though, this momentum is likely to wane as we look further out into the first quarter. And we already saw that weakness in December retail sales. So if, in fact, we do see this weakness carry forward into the first part of the first quarter, I, I think this reinforces the notion that pent-up demand is already being satisfied. Savings uh, through the pandemic are already being drawn down. That trillions in savings yeah. has depleted markedly. And this is going to lead to to a much more modest pace of growth for the longer run in the domestic economy. Well, well, what is your real inflation call for this year that gets you to nominal GDP? Give us those three statistics that you see. Real GDP, the inflation out to the end of the year, and the total nominal GDP statistic. Well, I think real GDP slows to a range of 2 to 3%. You factor on uh, about a, a 4% inflation figure at the end of the year, and you have a nominal GDP yeah. rate around 6%. All right, Lindsay Piegs, uh, one thing a lot of people are talking about this morning is how oil prices might change the equation pretty dramatically and actually could eliminate quite a bit from GDP. How do you factor that in? What's the choke point for oil prices? Oh, I, I think the fastest way to derail the consumer in the American economy is raising uh, gas prices, the sustained elevated gas prices. And we're already seeing that with double-digit gains across the country, with some of the highest prices, of course, being felt out on the West Coast. And so when we look at the consumer, when we look at the health of the consumer, and we talk about businesses being able to pass on these cost increases, well, if the consumer is already absorbing sizable price increases in some of these very key categories, i.e. energy and grocery businesses are going to have an increasingly difficult time passing on further price increases if the household balance sheet, the majority of the household balance sheet, is being allocated to those two categories. So, Lindsay, do you have a level, a choke point level? And I wonder, because I heard some people say $115 a barrel, some people saying it has to get back to $150 a barrel simply because of inflation. Oh, I think the consumer is on much more fragile footing than that. I think the choke point would be a lot lower between 90 to to $100. So we're rapidly approaching or even teetering into that category already. 
So I'm just wondering, Lindsay, just quickly to follow up here, uh, this idea of 90 to $100 a barrel, we're there. Are you saying that at this point, if oil prices are sustained where they are, the U.S. will not be able to avoid some sort of downturn? I think it's very clear that as the economy continues to recalibrate to a new normal level, we are already set to slow markedly from that 4.5% range in the second half of last year. I do expect GDP to remain positive, but slow to a range nearer 2 to 3%, which, if you remember, is very much in line with pre-pandemic growth. We tend to romanticize where we were prior to the crisis, but growth was already slowing from 3% in 2018 down to 2% in 2019. And with a moderate consumer, with elevated uh, inflation and rapidly rising energy costs, I think it's a very clear trajectory back to that pre-pandemic uh, growth rate of near 2 to 3% uh, GDP. Lindsay, thank you. Lindsay Piesa of Stafford. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.